0: want to give love to the city, that's a fact But you're gonna need help if you want to make an impact
1: Well-endowed, you want to be Well-endowed with the Edmonton community Things really happen when you find that you're well-endowed
2: Hi everyone, welcome to the Well-Endowed podcast. I'm Andrew Paul And hosting with me today is our producer, Lisa Pruden
1: Hi folks We've got a really special episode for you all today, so we're just going to jump right in. This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation, and we are a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network.
2: Edmonton is full of generous donors who have created endowment funds at ECF. These funds generate money to support charities in Edmonton and beyond. On this podcast, we share stories from the spaces where endowments and community intersect, because it's good to be well endowed.
1: So throughout the year, we've been sharing a special history series created by former Edmonton History Laureate and current producer of the fantastic podcast, Let's Find Out, Chris Chang Phillips.
2: Yeah, Edmonton Community Foundation celebrated its 30th anniversary in 2019. And to help celebrate, Chris has been sharing a story with a historical connection each month.
1: And so on this episode, we are bringing them all together. Chris sat down with Andrew to walk him through the wonderful stories he has brought us. So we know this episode is a little longer than our usual installments.
2: Just a little, like three episodes in one.
1: Yeah, you know, so cozy up someplace warm.
2: Or flip it on when you're driving uh, down to Calgary to visit the in-laws and have a little road trip uh, this holiday season. It would be perfect for that.
1: Yeah, we're here for you for the next hour and a half.
2: So please enjoy this wonderful series of stories all about our fair city. Welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast, Chris.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
2: (laughs) So uh, late last year, uh, we approached you to come take a look at some Edmonton history. And the reason why we asked you to do that is because 2019 slash 2020 is Edmonton Community Foundation's 30th anniversary. And though that is not very old, uh, (laughs) we did want to spend a little bit of time sort of looking back at some historical aspects of the city that we support. So, uh, we had you go out uh, and produce stories about various places uh, uh, around town that have some sort of ch- tangential connection to the work that we do here at the Community Foundation. And before we get into sort of our nice little recap, uh, just wanted to introduce you in person to our listeners. So, could you maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and your background?
3: Sure. Uh, so I'm Chris Changin and Phillips. Uh, I was Edmonton's fourth historian laureate. Uh, Marlene, the current historian laureate, reminds me to tell people that I am still uh, alive and doing stuff. So <laughs> I also make my own local history podcast. It's called Let's Find Out. Uh, I uh, was born and raised in Edmonton. I find the city endlessly fascinating. Um, and I find history kind of a cool niche to report on because it just gives me context for the places I go. I get to go around the city and then a st- place that I've done a story about suddenly has an extra layer of meaning. It makes places really cool, sometimes in a way that um, frustrates people around me if I navigate by saying, like, oh, yeah, there's that place that used to be the Pizza Hut. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I can imagine that's sort of like a hard habit to break. But should you really break it? I don't know. That's uh, that's kind of fun to be wandering around with someone that can be like, well, did you know <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this spot in 1914? <laughs> I think I'm fun to travel around with because of that. Fun fact: everywhere you go. You know, that's, uh, it sounds like you're pretty good company on strolling <laughs> around. Uh, so the first piece that uh, we had you do was actually looking at Edmonton Community Foundation's offices. Uh, so we are located downtown on the uh, old McDougal family property. And there used to be uh, three mansions uh, as part of sort of the, the compound, along with like tennis courts, stables. Um, it looks much different today, There's back alley apartment mm-hmm. building. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But when we look at sort of those um, uh, the the original blueprints of of the property, and there used to be three of these just magnificent brick houses, uh, there's only one left today, and that is part of our offices called Hilltop House. Uh, Now, the historic photos of the other mansions are just absolutely stunning and, you know, if, we, if they had to tear some houses down, I don't know why they didn't leave the main residence that was on the corner <laughs> of, uh, I believe it was 99th and 103rd Street, where Rigoletto's uh, is now mm. uh, stored in the bottom of an apartment building. <laughs> uh, but it's often said that Edmonton has this really poor track record of preserving and maintaining its historic buildings. And uh, I just wanted to get your take on, like, how bad is that track record, really? Oh, Um well, I think some of the most iconic uh,
3: like landscape architecture in Edmonton is the pyramids for City Hall and Metart, and those are based on a church, which has now been demolished. <laughs> it's not <laughs> that church wasn't even that old. Um, yeah, we're pretty bad, um, but there are. Uh, there's a very dedicated community of people who put a lot of time and attention into making people care about what we have left. Um, it's tragic how much has been destroyed but it's also nice to see that there are people who just throw as much love as possible at little buildings like the like the blacksmith shop in Old Strathcona that people are still trying to save yeah there there are little icons but it would be so nice to live in a city that had a, more of a built memory of what we have been
2: yeah absolutely uh so one of those preserved pieces uh or mostly preserved i should say is hilltop house uh maybe you can set up this story a little bit for us
3: hilltop house is kind of a neat place to get to uh it's it's kind of hidden you have to know exactly how to get here i feel like it's kind of like the room of requirement in harry potter because you have to walk by it three times to know how to get here <laughs> um but once you do uh it's a beautiful little building with a neat story about it and uh, i feel like it has a lot of similarities to avocados. Um, so listen to the piece and, and um, maybe I'll tell you why. Yep. Yeah. So we're walking through an emergency exit door.
4: And onto what have, would have been the original back porch or kitchen porch. The reason I wanted to keep it is because it's got this really cool walk-in ice box. A little bit the worse for wear. Uh, it might be some, uh, I don't know, pigeon droppings or something in there, but uh, it's an old uh, walk-in ice box, and uh, outside there's a little door where the Iceman would bring the blocks of ice. We just kind of shored it up a little and uh, uh, kept it here just for uh, to remind us all uh, uh, that there was a time before uh, electricity everywhere and uh, a time when uh, the Iceman was a real thing and not just a meme in a song. (laughs) Hi, my name's Martin Garber Conrad. I'm the CEO of Edmonton Community Foundation, which means that uh, I work for the rest of the group here, and uh, it's quite fun most days. I've been working in this building since we first acquired it, and had some interest in the building a few years earlier. So I've known Hilltop House for probably at least 15 years, maybe longer.
3: Hilltop House is the headquarters of the Edmonton Community Foundation, and it's an interesting building in a weird place. Today, you have to come down an alley to get to it, and it looks like a new building in an old fancy mansion spliced together kind of hidden away in a typical downtown street with high-rises and businesses around the block. But this block looked very different when the building was born.
4: Well, the story started north of us on the corner of 103 uh, Street and uh, 100th Avenue. The father of the people for whom this house was built had a large Victorian mansion on right on the corner. And their family had some interest in this whole block. Uh, So both sides of the alley um, for half a block or a block uh, south. And so father's house with, we understand, stables and tennis courts was on the corner. And then this house, which we affectionately call Hilltop House, he built that for his son in about 1912 when his son was getting married. There are still, uh, the MacDougall family is still very much in this town, although no longer on this block. We understand that Grandma had a frame farmhouse across the alley and that several other relatives lived in. There's still three kind of clinker brick uh, craftsman bungalows across the alley just north of us. So, Uh, It was not uncommon at that time for a large family to have, to be all on the same block in the same area.
3: This area has changed a lot. The father's mansion is gone and the tennis courts and the stable, but this house held on. But taking care of an old house, fixing it up and expanding and renovating it, has given the Edmonton Community Foundation something that they just couldn't have in an average office tower.
4: One of the reasons I was interested in the property aside from the fact that it was very central downtown was that that I have a real passion for historic buildings in Edmonton and had worked on several over the years in my previous job. And so it seemed quite natural and appropriate for the foundation to be in an historic building because of the way in which we we deal with legacies, two things have happened as a result of us being here. The first thing that happened was when we just had the house and we started meeting with prospective donors. And we'd be sitting in the dining room and they'd look around and it would remind them of their grandmother's house. And they'd start thinking about their family and talking about the family and that proved to be an excellent setting for talking about legacy. And so our donor services people, from the minute we moved in here, allocated twice as much time for donor meetings as they did before when they were meeting with them in a faceless corporate boardroom. The, the second thing that happened when we built on is that this weird little space we call the link? Um, this big glass in room we're in right yeah, now. It's nice, yeah. modern, wooden beam. So, with its unusual com- combination of heavy timbers, lots of glass, and one whole wall being the outside wall of a hundred and five-year-old house with stained glass windows. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, it. This turned out to be a really fine meeting room that people enjoy. It it really helps having that uh, beautiful historic setting surrounding us with uh, still the whispers of of a long-term Edmonton family in our space or us in their space.
3: So that was the Edmonton Community Foundation CEO, Martin Garber Conrad. And um, okay, the reason why I think that this building is like an avocado is... Have you ever heard about the avocado's ecological niche? Uh, no, <laughs>
2: I haven't. Please. <laughs> I, I am fascinated now.
3: <laughs> so it's this weird fruit that has this gigantic pit, right? Um, which makes you think, okay, usually fruits have seeds that are digestible by the things that eat them so that they can poop the seeds out and transport them somewhere new. Right. So the, there's this theory that avocados are sort of a ecological refugee, a remnant of this old ecosystem where there were gigantic herbivores that used to be able to eat these things whole and then poop out the like the big seed ball right. right. <laughs> <laughs> but now there those animals don't exist anymore, so we have this fruit that, uh, you know had had a niche and now uh, it's new niches us um right <laughs> <laughs> so i kind of feel like the hilltop house is kind of like that there used to be this whole ecosystem of buildings around it with the rest of the family and now it is the one building left of that era um, and it's sort of carved out a new niche.
2: So our next story takes us to another building at this time on the other side of the river in uh, the White Avenue neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about um, the Varscona Theater.
3: Yeah the Varscona Theater is one of these buildings that has been completely disassembled and reassembled kind of uh, like the the AJA was downtown. Um, it, it's kind of cool that the new building looks beautiful uh, but the Old building had challenges for a really long time, um, and I was curious, sort of, what pushes an organization over the edge to finally pull the trigger. And...
2: Right. So this is for the big reno for the new Varscona Theater. Uh, yes. Yeah.
3: Um, so uh, Stuart Lemoyne was kind enough to talk to me about it. He's a local playwright who does a ton of work at the Varscona, and uh, yeah, he he helped me understand what 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 pushed them over the edge
5: the beginning of my career which is 1982 when the fringe started the the first time I went and got groceries for the show was the first time I'd ever been given a plastic bag at Safeway and then you know it was like 30 years later and plastic bags are kind of being phased out so if and if they're gone within another few years I feel like my my career will have spanned the era of the plastic bag in grocery stores Hi, it's Stuart Lemoyne. I uh, am with Teatro La Quindicina, one of the resident companies uh, at the Varscona Theatre. And I'm also uh, one of the five people that uh, manage the building. And and I'm on the board. And I'm just always here. (laughs) And here we are in the dressing room. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I don't spend much time in the dressing room. Well, thank (laughs) you for bringing me backstage. Well, when we came here, which was uh, about 1994, I guess, uh, it had been operating as a theatre for about 10, 11 years. As the years went by, uh, Shadow and Teatro kind of took over running the building, but it it was converted from a fire hall, which it had been for about 30 years prior. So it was always a building that had been kind of uh, loosely adapted (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and certain things were not meant to be what they were being used as so uh, it was it was always a little rough and tumble
3: okay so building not designed as a theater um, not maybe in the best of shape
5: yes there was a, a rather primitive water heater that would constantly uh, the pilot light was always going out and then we would just have nothing but cold water and be trying to do dishes and whatever and uh, and so somebody would have to go down and relight it, and uh, this was, we'll feel like this is one of the catalysts for somebody standing up and saying, we just need a whole new building, was when Sherry Somerville went down to relight the pilot light and uh, set her hair on fire, <laughs> because she had to lie on the floor in order to do it. And so, you know, a glamorous uh A lady of song, who was aflame. She was okay. She was okay, just a little shaken, and just kind of uh, not sure how long, how many times she wanted to repeat that experience. Has she ever been reviewed as incandescent? Yeah, maybe that day. Yes, yeah.
3: And um, the stage itself was not um, ideal uh, with the many layers of performances that had been on there.
5: Yeah, well, when we moved in, you know, it had been in operation for a good. 10 or 11 years. And I think, you know, within another few years, we found that there'd been so many levels, so many coats of paint applied to the masonite on the stage that it was just starting to buckle. Uh and so what one of the things I remember is that when we did Pith and at the end of the play Divina had to Divina Stewart had to lay out uh, a place setting with a candelabra on the floor and she just had to be very very careful where she placed everything so she wouldn't put it on a little hill <laughs> because it was all a little precarious. There was a good flat area but it was a little to the left of what would have been ideal. <laughs> Because you can't put a, put a, don't put a candelabra on a, a, an uneven surface.
3: (laughs) Um, And the new space is beautiful, this mix of like wood beams and brick, it's it's got a nice feeling to
5: it. Yeah, and the great thing about it is that it's actually built on the bones of the old theater, and so there are, backstage, there are a lot of familiar corners. The stairwells to the basement are the same stairwells that were in the old building, and so that feels great. The dressing dressing rooms are in the same places, um, you know, and uh, you can see little echoes of brickwork and kind of know, this is where I used to stand in, except I was in a different hallway then, or that kind of thing. Uh, but it's great to have you know, a kitchen downstairs that has a dishwasher and is fully <laughs> operational as opposed to one that was sort of doubling as prop storage. And you know, wow. it was right backstage, so you'd come off and somebody would be trying to do the dishes, but somebody else would be trying to change their clothes. And, Wet props and, at all? Hmm? Oh, sometimes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
3: this building has had um, many lives, many occupants, many um, performers on the iterations of the stage um what do you think
5: lives on through all those many lives? Well, um, we're, we're still here, but basically uh, you know it's we always say that the most valuable things are are what the audience takes away every night you know they they have an experience that you try to provide them and so everybody has their own memories of of this place of being here and what they learned here and um, you know and for us it's it's interesting that, you know, we rehearse now upstairs instead of downstairs. It's like we're still in the same building, but we just continue to utilize it in different different ways and be in different parts of it. So, um, you know, I, I hope it'll last. We've, we've been pretty, uh, I think, good at raising a whole next generation of, of younger artists and making sure they sort of have ownership here and, uh, and that they know that this is a place where they, where they can continue to create in every way. And, and you know, certainly... As a as a fringe venue it's very important for us to to be part of that and because we we process you know a thousand people a day during the fringe we'll see wow. shows here because they'll see six performances and we've got 200 seats and so it, it is certainly a big part of the community
2: so my experience with the old varscona theater before it was renovated uh, was uh, going back to 2011 when I started doing some work for rapid fire theater who is one of the resident companies there mm-hmm. and oh, boy, did that building need (laughs) renovations, that poor women's bathroom. The plumbing there was just awful, and I rarely did a night go by during uh, a show where there weren't people complaining about uh, (laughs) the plumbing in the the women's bathroom. Oh, no. (laughs) Uh, But but it was an old fire hall, and um, then it was repurposed as a theater. Mm -hmm. And I was just sort of wondering what your thoughts are on, like, repurposing buildings as, like, a... Uh, how, how does that fit into sort of the preservation uh, equation? Because the buildings do have to be changed extensively. So they're not always preserved in like pristine original condition. Their walls are knocked down, um, you know, and they're sort of restructured, uh, but find a new life. Um, I, I think Jane Jacobs, um, great theorist
3: about uh, dense, beautiful, livable cities would say that more buildings should be built from scratch to be repurposable. They should have flexible spaces and not be intended to be torn down. Um, so it's great when we uh, see the potential and spaces. Um, I think there's value from continuity of memory. Like, it's so cool that actors can go into the new Varscona and still see familiar angles and bones from the old thing. One of my predecessors as a historian laureate, Shirley Lowe, um, she's also written about one of the important values of preserving heritage buildings and repurposing them, is just that there's carbon emissions embodied in the construction of every building. Um, so when we save some of the bones, it's actually kind of a green building technique to, to save that and not have to add a whole bunch of new carbon into
2: totally constructing a building from scratch. Right, right. So in April, uh, you went and visited McLuhan House. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about who Marshall McLuhan was.
3: Yeah, um, he was a kid when he lived here in Edmonton, but he grew up to hugely influence the way uh, we think about communication even today. I took this as an opportunity to get a little bit more familiar with Marshall McLuhan's work. Uh, It's a really cool house. It doesn't look like a museum from the outset. It just looks like kind of another house in the Highlands, but uh, contains some really cool stuff about an important theorist about the way we talk to each other
6: it's really cute when someone comes from Colombia or uh, Bulgaria or wherever like visiting a university here knocks on the door and says hi I teach McLuhan can I come in and one way Hi, my name is Chelsea Bose, and I'm the manager of McLuhan House. Uh, McLuhan House is a community space for interpreting and honoring the legacy of Marshall McLuhan.
3: Who you may know as a communication theorist, or you may just know some of the things he said, like the medium is the message. That's Marshall McLuhan.
6: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
4: together son to
3: go to school. I've heard about this place called as a, a mini museum, but it doesn't um, it doesn't feel like an artifact focused space.
6: Right. Yeah, we um, we have an artist a studio residency program and a speaker series and a book club and we've had speakers come and talk about the telegraph Uh, radio, social media.
3: Spider Mabel is coming up.
6: Spider Mabel.
3: These photographs here are... This picture is like a glimpse into what it was like, um, when it was just a home for Marshall McLuhan and his family.
6: Yeah, this is their family vehicle. He was born in 1911, so... It would be very early. I think he's sitting in the back seat with his uncle and aunt.
3: A baby with a, like a big sun hat on in an old timey car with an open top that kind of almost looks like a horse and carriage. Like that's the style exactly. of car. Yeah. Oh, it's got those little um, kerosene lamps. Yeah. yeah.
6: <laughs> <laughs> and her outfit. I love that she's driving. This is his mother, Elsie McLuhan. Uh, they moved here in 1911 to uh, get out of the farm life, I guess. They wanted um, to make a name for themselves in the city. Um, Elsie was a teacher, and Herb was a real estate dealer. Right before real estate, uh, kind of went belly up, uh, they moved here. (laughs) (laughs)
4: He, he, they laugh at me, they throw things I mean you just give me two reasons why I should go to school again he said well son the first reason is you're 43 years old the second reason is
3: you're the principal I feel often very jealous of McLuhan because he packaged his ideas so well in such catchy ways and so many of them still stick with us mm-hmm. and like as some the A lot of them seem to have completely transcended any like connection to his name anymore. Like Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. the idea of the global village Mm -hmm. is something that just seems like totally have outgrown his reputation.
6: Yeah, I know. Uh, Sometimes I'll find it and I'll say, "See, like no reference to McLuhan at all." (laughs) (laughs) Interesting, Um, but I'm sure he borrowed it from someone else as well. Like he was a very collaborative worker so
3: we're looking at a shelf of his books uh, above the fireplace in the living room here? or dining room or what is this room
6: parlor <laughs> parlor <laughs> maybe <laughs> yeah it's i find it really ironic that his choice of medium was the book primarily he wrote like 25 publications um but there are of varying types so some of them are very design heavy very visual and non-linear and then some of them are straight up texts with indexes and they're very conventional
3: is it (laughs) surprising to you that he picked this instead of like doing a nightly tv show
6: yeah which he probably also did i mean he was on tv a lot um
3: yeah, interesting that he committed to this like old-timey linear medium.
6: Yeah, I think he saw value in the experience of reading a book.
3: So we've been looking at these framed photographs of Marshall McLuhan when he was tiny, when he was a little toddler. Yeah. Um, I feel like so much of McLuhan's reputation, although I don't consider myself an expert in his work at all, um, I feel like a lot of his reputation is about sort of... Um, Media without a physical presence, and how much our lives are being changed by ourselves being transmitted across the world without having like a physical incarnation as our ideas get transmitted. Um, but here we are in like a physical space with some like old school media dedicated to his life, mm-hmm. like a little library of of printed books and mm-hmm. photographs and stuff. Like how can a space like this speak to our time? How is, it, how is this place not an anachronism?
6: Mm-hmm. I do, I think it's a bit of a paradox. Uh, something I read early on, because I didn't know anything about Mark when I started working here three and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. I came across um, his seminars in, in Toronto. Um, I think called them Monday Night Seminars. And they would just kind of have a open forum about whatever was on their minds it's him and a lot of grad students and some undergrad students and he said humans are formed in uh, dialogue so he was always very conscious that we need to have in-person experiences to have these critical conversations and so that's i think what's. Important about having a space like this um, to be able to learn from each other and bounce ideas off each other and and mobilize all the knowledges that are out there.
3: That was Chelsea Bose, who at the time was manager at McLuhan House. Uh and I really appreciate that she took the time to show me around.
2: I really liked how the piece opens with Chelsea talking about how people uh, would come from, like, far away wanting to check out the house because, you know, they they teach uh, Marshall McLuhan's theory, you know, in far off places. I think the most random uh, time that that happened to me was in uh, Zagreb, Croatia, at this uh, contemporary art museum. There is this installation that was like this massive cube of, like, green and blue pipes. Uh, There's, like, a toilet (laughs) attached. Uh, But then there was a screen uh, that had, you know, uh, the medium is the message uh, on it. And um, it was just sort of a weird um, sort of, you know a hint of home being so far away because uh, knowing that Marshall McLuhan uh, came from Edmonton and it had been a really long day uh, we had taken a bus out to a national park called Plitvis National Park which is this crazy series of waterfalls that sort of you climb up these different steps uh, further and further into the mountains it looks like Neverland mm. um, but they wouldn't sell us a return ticket at the bus station so when we tried to get back um, we went to the bus stop, or where we got dropped off, which is essentially like a doghouse on the side (laughs) of uh, this really remote mountain road. Uh, And it was the shoulder season, so nowhere was really open, so we just stood there for like two hours waiting for a bus. Uh, And one bus came by and said, no, (laughs) that's all. (laughs) Just no? Just no. (laughs) Like, (laughs) uh, okay. Another hour went by, and this beat up minivan pulls up, and this guy, gets out of the driver's seat, walks around, and asks us, where are you trying to go? And we're like, well, we're trying to get back to the city. He's like, okay, I need to find four more people uh, yes. <laughs> to make this worth my time. <laughs> It'll be this much. <laughs> so only the driver's side door worked on this fan, so <laughs> he opened <laughs> it up, we <laughs> climbed in, and uh, drove around the the park until we found four more uh, stranded tourists, (laughs) including two actors from Calgary, uh, which is like such a small world. And yeah, he drove us, uh, you know, like two hours back, uh, back into the city, uh, almost hit a traffic cop, uh, who was directing traffic in this crazy, like eight lane roundabout. And that's when we had him drop us off at the museum (laughs) because we're like, let's just go check out this, uh, this art gallery here and like get out of this van. And then we walked in to find uh, Marshall McLuhan uh, waiting for us inside. Uh, A friend from home. A friend from home. You know, it really hit the spot. (laughs) 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 Uh, So the next piece that you did for us uh, was a visit to the Edmonton Radial Society. Mm -hmm. Um, And... I just found this piece really interesting, just like looking back at sort of the origins of public transit uh, mm. in Edmonton. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about um, the Radial Society and what we're about to listen to.
3: Yeah. The Edmonton Radio Railway Society is run by volunteers who um, really, really care a lot about the history of streetcars in Edmonton and uh, have uh, devoted a gigantic amount of time to maintaining a service that although it isn't like a intended to be a commuter service it's like kind of a touristy thing it I think it is one of the most fun and beautiful things about living in Old Kona and or um downtown you know you can get on the streetcar now to go to those secret streetcar shows in the summer and stuff I have more than one friend who's gotten married uh, on the streetcar on the middle of the bridge of course it didn't used to be a tourist attraction it used to be just how people got around, so um, I uh, asked some of the volunteers there uh, on an off day uh, to show me what streetcars have come to mean today.
7: Well, it's unlike anything else that you'd ever drive. It's an all-electric system, and as soon as you put the power on, you have full torque, so away the streetcar goes. And so it's all about touch and listening for sounds, and it takes a bit of practice to, to get that feel. Yeah, I'm uh, Chris Ashdown, President of the Edmonton Radial Railway Society. We're in the Strathcona streetcar barn. This is where we hold all of our streetcars for operating on the High Level Bridge streetcar line. The farmer's market is on the other side of the wall from our barn. We're on the north side of the uh, arts barns. And and we're standing in front of uh, which car here? Um, Right now we're standing in front of uh, Osaka, Japan number 247. It was built 1921. You've driven this one, obviously. I've driven all of them.
3: It's a quiet spring day at the streetcar barns. This place is kind of a mix of a mechanical shop and a museum. Volunteers are making a little chain link barrier between the two, so visitors don't go wandering out between the park streetcars. The season is about to start, and the Edmonton Radial Railway Society has just got some big news. The city's approved a line extension of about one block, so now the streetcars will go all the way across to White Avenue. I admit, I think it's kind of neat but a bit hilarious compared to the scope of how big Edmonton streetcar system
7: used to be. Streetcars were the first public transportation system in Edmonton starting in 1908. Um, So it was millions of people rode the streetcars in Edmonton. So they um, predated buses and trolley buses and then eventually LRT. The earlier generations uh, rode streetcars all the time. Uh, We had lines that came down to the south side in Strathcona, so along White Avenue, there was a line that went along 76th Avenue to McKernan Lake, to um, a big uh, lake, so there was both summer and winter activities that went on there. A lake which does not exist anymore. No, nope. Today, the streetcar service
3: is just two little lines, one at Fort Edmonton Park, and one across the high-level bridge. The volunteers skew heavily towards older, retired guys. But they have some really big kid fans, like the one in this newspaper clipping that they've saved.
7: It's Jack Forestier. Um, he's a fiddler, um, really well known, really experienced, um, highly awarded fiddler. He used to ride on the streetcar quite regularly with his mother when he was quite young.
8: Uh, we've been keeping track of the numbers over the years, and we knew that in that year, the 500, the half millionth passenger would be on the car. This is Tony Kernahan, who's one of our early members in the society. And then, as it got. As the numbers crept towards that. It was going to be on a Saturday morning, and we had two streetcars out that morning, and Jack and his mum were on one of them. So I suppose we, I wouldn't say cooked the books, but we made sure that Jack would be on the car, and we, you know, he was the half millionth. <laughs> um, I mean, he deserved it because he came every week, every Saturday morning, he was there with his mum. Yeah, so...
3: Were you, were you driving that
8: day? I was, actually, yeah,
3: yeah. What did you give him? What did you give Jack?
8: It was actually a conductor's hat, yeah. And afterwards, for the rest of that season, and I think the next season, he wore it when he came on a Saturday morning. Yeah, yeah, he always had it, yeah.
3: I can't decide what this streetcar service means to me. On the one hand, it's kind of a frustrating, overly nostalgic reminder that Edmonton wasn't always a place where you needed a car to get around. On the other hand, I'm kind of charmed by what the streetcar system has become as a novelty. I mean, I've been on one of those secret streetcar shows where you get on the streetcar and you park in the middle of the bridge and you have a tiny concert with maybe the 20 of you that fit on the streetcar. And you can see the sunset in the background. You can see the view all up and down the river valley. I don't know how to decide. Is this kitsch or is it just something nice?
8: I think we announced it to the car that... uh Jack was the half millionth passenger since we started, yeah. So it was fun, yeah. <laughs> but he was interviewed, I think, and he was asked, well, what do you like about it? He says, well, I like the people, I like the scenery, but I wish it went a bit faster, he said.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so that was Edmonton Radio Railway Society's Chris Ashdown and Tony Kernahan. Uh If you ride the streetcar and uh, just wish you could squeeze a little bit more out of the experience, They are actually extending the line. Um, It was a big deal. It took this gigantic amount of negotiation. I just think it's really funny that it took so long to negotiate extending one
6: block. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why it
0: took
3: so long. But I guess that's the history of uh, any uh, railway uh, LRT train systems in Edmonton is it takes us a long time to figure out how to make a train cross a road.
2: So though we won't uh have high speed rail to Calgary anytime soon.
9: Mm.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we did send you chasing a story in Calgary uh in June. Mm-hmm. Uh and initially we were looking at um uh, sort of doing a little piece on Lougheed House uh, mm-hmm. down there, but um, you came back to us with a little bit of a different idea that still involved Lougheed. Uh This is Senator James uh, think in this case,
3: grandpa of Premier Lougheed. Yes, yes.
10: Uh,
2: so maybe we can set up this piece and who Charles Daniels is was.
3: Yeah, thank you for indulging me in what in this tangent that I wanted to go down because when I when I heard that you want to do a story connected to Senator Laheed, I thought, oh my God, the most interesting thing that ever happened in his life that I know of was this incident at uh, Calgary's Grand Theater um, that we do, do not talk enough about in Alberta, but really should be one of our, we should think of it as one of our Rosa Parks moments as a country. Um, it's about a guy who stood up to injustice there a century ago. His name isn't on that building or any other building yet, uh, but he helped change the our cultural landscape for all Albertans and um, author Cheryl Fogo generously helped me uh, learn about this.
0: Hi, I'm Cheryl Fogo. I'm an author and community historian, and I write a lot about people of African descent who are a part of the Alberta, well, particularly the Western Canadian um, mosaic, and I'm a descendant of pioneers who arrived in the area in 1910 so I also write a lot about that specific community oh boy it was so long ago that I first ran across the Charles Daniels story that I I'm actually not sure when or why it was I was just in the process of discovering that we weren't the first black people Here, I knew that there were were a few individuals, of course, I had heard about John Ware. But at that point, I was discovering that people like Charles Daniels had been here for a while and that my ancestors came into a small but already establishing community of people of African descent in Western Canada.
3: What do we know about Charles Daniels' life before he walked into the Sherman Grand Theatre that night?
0: He had already been involved with a group of people who did work on behalf of the African descended community who lived in Calgary, because his name popped up in connection with other events, and particularly with a group called the Coloured People's Protective Association, so he was, uh, he was not a person who just decided on a whim that day to stand up to the situation he encountered. He had a history of doing that prior to that particular day. But it's interesting how deeply buried the histories of people of African descent can be. We don't even know for sure if his name was Charles Daniel or Charles Daniels. Most of what I know about the specifics of what happened come from the transcripts, the, the pre-trial questioning documents that Bashir uncovered at the um, at the archives up there in Edmonton. Bashir Mohammed. Bashir Mohammed, that's right. It was uh, it was a very interesting situation. He had bought a ticket to see a show. I think it was King Lear, at the Grand, a live show. This is back in 1914. And he had sent the son of a neighbor to the theater to pick up the tickets. So he himself had not purchased them in person. And when he got to the theater, he and his friend who was going to see the show with him were told that they could um, get their ticket refunded or, They could go upstairs and um, sit where the black people sat or they could get the ticket refunded and then pay a lower price for the upstairs ticket, I believe. Um, Anyway, he refused all of that and said, no, I want to sit in the seat that I purchased. And he then, you know, they kind of danced around the issue and he confronted them about why they were refusing him admission. And there they, a fuss was made and um, he was finally asked to leave. And he went home and decided that he wasn't going to just leave it at that. He was going to challenge them on that. Hmm. So
3: this theatre was owned by a fairly prominent senator at the time, Senator James Lougheed, and and Charles Daniels ended up suing the theater for discrimination. And he he sued them for $1,000 in damages. Is that right?
0: That's what he wanted to do. And uh, it would appear from what we know now that the case actually never went to trial. There's a little bit of a cliffhanger about what actually happened ultimately, but that was what he asked for in the court, yes.
3: Interesting, so um, it didn't go to trial. What ended up happening with the damages that he
0: requested? We're still in the process of investigating. All I can say is that the story that I believed to be true, is not necessarily true. So that narrative went that he sued for $1,000 in damages and won by default because nobody from the firm of Lawheed and Bennett showed up at the court date. That may not be true. I hope to find out more about this. It's a much more uh, it's a much richer story than what we've known about it in the past. And he was incredibly, he was an incredibly strong person to be willing to go up against a man who was not only a senator but also a lawyer. And because James Lawheed owned the theater but wasn't involved in the running of the theater, in fact, he, I believe, even said he didn't own the theater per se, he owned the building. He ultimately it would appear had his name removed from the lawsuit for that reason.
3: Wow. I am so intrigued to see how your research pans out. This is, this is very exciting that, that you're in a discovery phase.
0: Yeah, I'm working on a, uh, a short film about the story with Spotlight Productions, and I'm having a really great time Sort of trying to create a picture of what his life was like and who his associates were and finding more detail about this specific case. I hope people are inspired by his example and are enlightened about Black people's lives in in Calgary going back a long time.
3: Uh, So that was author and playwright Cheryl Fogo. Uh, I reached her in Amsterdam uh, talking about Charles Daniels and what he did at the Grand Theater in Calgary. She, I believe, is still in the process of editing a documentary about him. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing what she comes up with.
2: So, our next story that we had you do uh, is looking at a building that used to be in one place in the city, Mm -hmm. uh, but now is in a different place in the city. Uh, So, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the Alberta Hotel.
3: Yeah. uh, People in Edmonton today might know the Harbin Gate is in kind of long term storage while people figure out what to happen with it. A similar thing happened to the Alberta Hotel when um, this iconic building with a white cone on top that was on Jasper Ave, when it was uh, uh, demolished, the People who took it down had the foresight to save, I believe, pretty much every single brick from the original construction, <laughs> waiting for a time when it could come back to life. Uh, so the new building is very close to where it was before. It's on the same block. Um, CKOA lives in there now. It still has a white cone. It's so cool to know that this like, body was taken apart into its constituent <laughs> pieces and then reassembled into a new place. Um uh, and it really was a hotel back in the day, um, you know, one of these places where people uh, came to stay and also had kind of a social life, um, and I wanted to get a little flavor of what life was like at the hotel. Um, some folks at the provincial archives helped me dig out uh, the story of just one night at the hotel that I think really captured um, what life was like then. On a night when a group of traveling salesmen gathered to show their appreciation for the guy who worked at the front desk, It was fall, and the seasons were changing, and the Knights of the Grip had gathered at the Alberta Hotel to celebrate their old friend, Bob Patchell. It was 1913, back when the Society pages told stories about all the fancy guests staying at the Alberta, and the traveling salesman too. Good old Bob, Bob who'd served them faithfully as the clerk and manager at the hotel, was off to Winnipeg to rendezvous with his girl, Mary. Mary from back home, from all the way back in New Brunswick, In a day or two, he'd hop on a train and make Mary his wife, and they'd come back to Edmonton, Mr. and Mrs. Patchell, and he'd still be managing the hotel. But everything would be different. Plans. You make plans and you hope the world doesn't make new plans for you. It was 1913. The boys of the road sure surprised Bob that night. He had no idea they had a ceremony planned to celebrate what one of them called the second biggest event in a man's life. No idea they'd pooled their funds to present him with an oak case full of silverware. They told him if he and Mary should at any time desire a spoon, they had only to turn to this gift and think of the boys. Maybe it was such a big party because of how much they liked Bob. Or maybe it was because he was overdue for this whole thing. He was 34. Maybe they were happy it was all finally happening for him. After a decade in the military, he was finally settling down. Did he think of those spoons and all those fond wishes a year later when war broke out in Europe? Did he think of that oak case and all those plans a year after that when he enlisted, leaving Mary behind in Canada? Lieutenant Robert Truman Patchell. Height, five foot nine, Complexion? Fair? Eyes? Hazel? Hair? Auburn? Church of England? Yes. Surely this wasn't what Mary thought she was signing up for. Surely this wasn't what Bob thought was in store for him, either. The Knights of the Grip gathered around for a song. For he's a jolly good fellow, for he's a jolly good fellow, for he's a jolly good fellow, which nobody can deny. In a year or two, it'd all go to hell. In the decades to come, this hotel that had brought them all together would close down. It'd all be packed up brick by brick and stone by stone and tucked away until it was ready to become a new building full of other people's stories. And they'd put it all back together again. But tonight, Bob was surrounded by the boys, and they wished him well. He had a lump in his throat, but he squeaked out a thanks. It was 1913 at the Alberta Hotel.
2: The Knights of the Grip. Do you know a little bit about that organization and who they were?
3: Yeah. So my understanding is they were called the Knights of the Grip because they gripped suitcases. They were traveling salesmen. So they were, <laughs> and this was something that was uh, sort of a uh, one of these organizations where you'd ha- you'd have one in each town. Like Edmonton had a Salvation Army Citadel, so did Winnipeg. Like Knights of the Grip were all over North America, as far as I understand.
2: So primarily probably a brotherhood in those days uh like a national (laughs) boys club (laughs) for traveling salesmen yep exactly it's like
3: very arthur miller (laughs) (laughs) which makes sense this is why people would get to know the the clerk of the hotel
2: yeah absolutely absolutely all right the mercer warehouse um So this uh, building uh, went through, like, a a whole bunch of different um, sort of purposes. Uh, And maybe you could tell us a little bit about the neighborhood that it's in uh, to to start.
3: It's been a part of Edmonton's landscape for over a century, uh, and it's had a really interesting role to play in uh, our industrial and warehousing um, history, too. It's cool to see buildings like this get repurposed.
2: Yeah, I love walking down 104th Street and seeing the old, what are they called, like ghost signs? Uh, the old sort of advertising murals. They're like mm-hmm. hand-painted ads uh, for uh, yeah. uh, the businesses that used to be in these these brick buildings. Yeah, um, yeah it's such a cool street. Uh, so can you maybe uh, set up this piece for us and uh, what we're about to hear?
3: Yeah, uh, I learned a lot of little things about the building, um, and I thought it would be fun to uh, just sort of blurt out all these things that I learned in uh, trivia format, so I I literally went into the Mercer warehouse with my little stack of research, um, and I looked for somebody at Startup Edmonton who would indulge me in playing a little trivia game, and um, well, you can listen along and, and maybe you'll know some of the answers to these questions too. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm here at the Mercer Warehouse um, with somebody who works in the Mercer Warehouse because I want to uh, just share some cool stuff about the building. So uh, would you mind explaining uh, who you are and uh, what you do here?
11: Uh, hi, I'm Gizem. I work out of Startup Edmonton and I've been here for a couple of years. I'm working on a startup called Commerce Owl. What does Commerce Owl do? We help e-commerce food and beverage stores that are uh, wanting to get better marketing. So our first platform is called uh, is called Sell with Recipes. We help them publish recipes.
3: So we're in this kind of like uh, place where startup businesses can um, have have a spot to incubate, but also mix and mingle a little bit. And it's in a building with a lot of history. Yeah, there is a lot of history. The floor is creaky. <laughs> so um, I got I got five things for you um, that hopefully I'll be able to wow you with. Here's fact one about the Mercer Warehouse that. Hopefully you've never heard this before. Um, We know the building is called the Mercer Warehouse, but do you know what they were first warehousing here?
11: Uh, Before I answer that, I hope ghosts are related to this somehow, because I've heard about ghosts. (laughs) Uh, But no, uh, I don't know. Um, There's a sign out back somewhere that says like fruits and vegetables, and I think it's false advertising because I don't see any fruits and vegetables here. But uh, yeah, I don't really know what it was about. Fruits and
3: vegetables um, did come along at a point in the building's lifespan, but it was actually first started by J.B. Mercer. Um, He had the building built in 1911 um, because he had a liquor business um, and a cigar business on Jasper Ave. Um, So he wanted a warehouse to store some of his stuff. He was also the local distributor for the Calgary Brewing Company. So they were storing stuff here too. Ah, cool. So here's a second wild fact. Um, So J.B. Mercer had this liquor store on White Ave. One of the wildest things that he was stocking
11: in 1911 is he sold olives and cherries at his liquor store. Oh, that's really interesting. So they somehow, yeah. Uh, I don't drink, but I, do those things go together? Cherries
3: and liquor. Olives and cherries are both things that you would want in a drink, potentially. Maybe not together. I don't know if olives and cherries together. But yeah, I found a, an Edmonton Bulletin article, newspaper from 1911 that mentions that he kept them in stock for making punches and fancy drinks. It seemed weird to me reading that there would be fruit available at a liquor store at that time and I thought maybe it was like preserved fruit, but apparently Edmontonians were wild for fresh fruit at the time. I read this other article interviewing an unnamed fruit merchant here in the city. (laughs) (laughs) Mystery fruit merchant number one. (laughs) Chose to be anonymous. Um, Who said that people in Edmonton are great fruit eaters, no mistake, and uh, the- the Right? Um, so this reporter, he went into the shop and he saw someone leaving with like a handful of a big bunch of bananas. And uh, the, on the other hand, a couple pounds of cherries. Um, and apparently we were getting apples from B.C. and Ontario and Oregon here and California cherries.
11: Wow, that's interesting. So I have uh, some history with cherries. Um, I don't like the California cherry part because um, I used to work for a food truck and we got B.C. cherries and we're very proud about that <laughs> so we do take our fruit very
3: seriously <laughs> um okay uh one other business here um that, w- that was here in the 1910s was a customs examining warehouse so these are the people who like seize stuff at customs
11: um, oh so oh this is blowing my mind now because that what's the the canadian border security agency is just literally next door yeah so that's kind of stuck around yeah, just still in it, yeah. Wow,
3: um, and uh, I found a uh, uh, little story about an, uh, an auction that was held in nineteen fourteen. Because just like today, you know, they seize all this stuff that people
11: um, <laughs> like bring through the border. Um, so, okay, sorry to interrupt. Funny story about seizing stuff over the border because again, it links links to fruit. And this one time, I actually was bringing stuff apples from California into Canada, and I couldn't bring them in. So I was sitting there at the at the little uh, immigration thing and I was eating apples as they were examining our bags because they're going to throw them away anyway. (laughs) But it would have been nice if the apples actually went to good use into an auction. (laughs) Well, you're not
3: far off because this was the weird thing I found about this auction in 1914. So this auctioneer, Robert Smith, he's selling off some of the seeds and unclaimed goods. And apparently some of the stuff he sold that day was um, a case of coats, a silver looking teapot and some lady bought 23 bags of figs. Oh, wow. That could have been my fix, damn it.
2: <laughs>
3: okay, I got two more. This one's a trick question. How many floors
11: are on this building? Um, oh, that's always trick Well, it feels weird because when you come up, up on the second floor it's, and then you have to go to the third, it's kind of like so technically three, mm. but I bet you there's more. So, This is why it's a trick question because there are three today, but there were
3: four before what uh, the Edmonton Bulletin called a cyclonic fire in 1922. Ooh, wow. Yeah, it gutted the warehouse um, in about 20 minutes. Apparently, part of the reason it was so bad um, was because there was a paint company up here um, that were storing like varnishes and paints and stuff. Um, it started at like 6 15 in the morning. Somebody who was delivering papers apparently spotted it and uh, Spotted some flash upstairs on the third floor ran over to the railway office across the street called the fire department um, But uh, I just want to show you a picture of what this fire
11: Ooh, looked like exciting. Oh, wow It kind of looks like it was burned by a dragon or something that's oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're putting words in my mouth, but <laughs> fair enough. I could see the top How it was like completely scraped and oh wow, it looks really interesting At the time they described it as looking like uh, a building that had been bombed on the western front because this was just after Yeah, that checks out for sure. Whew. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, that's giving me shivers.
3: Yeah Um, so they, when they rebuilt it, they didn't rebuild the fourth floor. They built it only to three. Oh, interesting Okay, last thing. Um do you think that JB Mercer, the name the guy who this whole building is named after, do you think he stuck around long enough to see all this go down?
11: Huh. I wasn't thinking about him as we were seeing the story develop, but I'm gonna say no. Correct. In 1912, apparently,
3: he and his wife peaced out. They moved to Honolulu.
11: Oh, ha! Clever guy. <laughs>
3: Um, The society pages say that both of them had been in ill health lately um, so they decided to make a permanent home in Hawaii. Uh, Before that they were apparently fixtures in the curling and bridge scenes here Um, and it looks like their daughter uh, was instantly quote a guest of honor at a number of smart affairs in Honolulu um, because she got engaged and uh, she made plans to come back to Edmonton to
11: to get married. (laughs) Okay, that's pretty good trivia. I like that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't I didn't see that coming. <laughs> that
3: was a little Mercer Warehouse trivia for you. Thanks to Gazim Hoja for being a good sport for that story.
11: I literally just walked upstairs
3: and was like, Who wants to
2: play a game? <laughs> um have you come across any ghost stories during, uh, producing these <laughs> pieces for us? Andrew, I'm,
3: I'm a bad person to talk to about ghosts because I, I, I have my head in my hands right now because I love research. There's so much fascinating that we can actually find that's documented about the city. Um, and ghost stories, they, they, they kind of frustrate me because they are sort of by definition, unconfirmable. And there's so much that we can actually find out that we have stuff to hold on to. So, um, I, I kind of make an effort to uh, not go into
7: ghost story.
2: Well, you know, teach their own. <laughs> <laughs> so this kind of segues into a little bit more of like a macabre uh, kind of piece that we had you do, which was uh, sending you down to the provincial archives to check out a holographic will. Mm-hmm. Um, not you know, a hologram. Right. <laughs> I was just gonna say, when when he came back, he was like, a holographic will. I was like, hmm, seems way too modern for what we thought this was gonna be.
3: Not maybe the best way to leave a will behind. <laughs> um, but if you have to get your papers in order, um, this can work. And uh, when I was at the Provincial Archives, they showed me a fascinating last will and testament from uh, a man from Calgary. He left a century ago. So we're about to open the, a box. A long box. Ooh, this is.
9: This is his will. <laughs> it looks like a
3: a, a square, a, a rectangle of, of wood.
9: Yeah, it's almost like a. It's a T shape, is what it is, and that was part of the problem, because if you look at it, it's not your standard piece of paper that a will is typically written on.
3: And I'm in a quiet conservation room behind the scenes at the provincial archives of Alberta, taking a peek at a real legal will that a soldier from Calgary wrote a century ago on a wooden drawer in a traveling chest. It ended up at the Provincial Archives because, well, it's a will, and they're the ones that keep those.
9: My name is Allison Freak, I'm a textual records conservator at the Provincial Archives of Alberta. Or I could just say paper conservator, which is definitely not applicable in this case. <laughs>
3: <laughs> what does a conservator do?
9: Conservator. Uh, well, basically we are primarily concerned with the physical condition of our records. And so I work with the archivists to identify pieces that are in need of more than standard rehousing and, and preventive conservation. So the man's name is Alexander Moyer and he was a policeman in Calgary. So that was his line of work at the time that he passed away. He was a member of the 10th Battalion of the Canadian Expeditionary Force. And he uh, died on active service. We don't know exactly when he died, but they know, they were able to trace that he disappeared and was never seen again after the Battle of Kitchener's Wood, which was part of uh, the Ypres. This is World War One. First World War, yes. Uh, and so that took place April 22nd to the 24th, 1915. And so after that, he was presumed dead for official purposes. Um, war was declared on 4th of August, 1914. And he signed up on the 8th of August. <laughs> wow. So he didn't waste any time. And I think maybe because he was a Scotsman, that it may It felt have, very personal? It, it felt very personal for him. What,
3: uh, uh, interesting that he had the presence of mind to write something before yes. he left.
9: Yes. And I don't know if it's because he was a carpenter and he had an affinity for wood, but he decided the chest would be the best place to put it.
3: <laughs> oh, there's a note on the side. You will find
9: yes so it says you will find the lid nailed down and locked so maybe this was the outside and that was the clue to get into the to find the will because we don't know how it was positioned inside the chest we don't really know <laughs> but
3: this is all that remains of the chest this is this is all that tea? remains
9: of the chest that we have
3: this looks like a drawer that maybe you'd put like buttons or like a belt yes. in
9: yeah it looks like something uh, like an organizer kind of section for a for a chest
3: is that a, may I touch it, it Yes a, you yeah? can yes okay. you can by the center Lift here? it up
9: yeah lift it up by the center cuz that's the strongest part Oh it's catching Yeah oh,
2: sorry
0: there
9: you go. Wow. it's pretty light. It is. It's very light. It's probably pine, because that would have been used for the sort of carcass of the of, uh, trunks and things like that. It wouldn't have been a very expensive or heavy wood, because, of course, it was meant for travel, too, so it, it shouldn't have been a very heavy wood.
3: I like that you can see...
9: What are these? Are these nails? I think those are nails, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which makes it difficult to handle where i'm always afraid somebody's going to gouge themselves on it but you can see because it's been a court record it's got labels on it and tape on it and and sharpie Sharpie. (sighs) now at the time that he died they didn't know he had a will which brings us to a point there's no point writing a will if you're if nobody knows you have one (laughs) right um you can have a will i think people either don't want to write a will or they write a will and then hide it because they don't want anybody to know what's in it but again when you're no longer around and you want to make sure that something is your estate is dispersed the way that you want make sure it's findable this was found two and a half years after Alex Moyer died
3: The will was discovered after a relative that Alex lived with in Calgary sent his traveling chest out east to his mom. Just picture what that moment must have been like.
9: She's going through this chest, maybe going through his belongings, a not very pleasant evening I'm sure. And she's there with two of her daughters, so they would be Alex Moyer's half-sisters. And so they're looking at the chest and they realize that part of it comes out. And then they see this. The upshot of it is that he leaves the estate to his mother.
3: This kind of will, would it be accepted today if someone had something like this as, as the closest thing they had to a will?
9: Well, this is considered a holographic will.
3: Which means... Which means it it doesn't mean it's a magical picture in no, a no, piece no. of glass. It
9: just means that um, it's not signed or witnessed, but it's clearly written by the, the person whose estate is being referred to and it it clearly states who it is that is supposed to uh, accept it he actually owned two blocks of property in calgary and he owned property in bc and so his final uh, estate i think by the time all was said and done and everything was properly appraised was over two thousand dollars in 1921 that's a substantial sum of money that's not something to be dismissed easily it would have been much easier for his mother if he just had a will (laughs) that he had maybe given to her or given to an attorney uh to hold on to i mean he could have written out a will and given it to his uncle or whoever was in the house or you know some other friends i I don't know it was hard to tell i mean given the events nobody knew what was going to happen at the time and so i guess he just picked whatever seemed the most solid option
3: literally solid
9: literally solid
3: Uh, thanks to Alison Frake, a conservator at the Provincial Archives of Alberta, for telling me about the drawer will that Alex Moyer left behind. Um, yeah, that was so fascinating. Uh, kind of sad, but also really cool to see his handwriting.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also, like, I can't believe it was, like, found so much longer after, uh, he had passed away, um... So, you know, going and getting your will properly done just so that your executor can can find it uh, is probably good and will save your family a lot of headaches. And
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if you're going to write it on a drawer, at least let someone know that you wrote it on a
2: drawer and where. Going into October, uh, it was right around uh, the one year anniversary of the legalization of cannabis in Canada. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to look a little bit into uh, prohibition and uh, how that took shape uh, in Edmonton. So where did you go to sort of uh, dig up story story um, to look at prohibition in town here?
3: I started with uh, a book that a, a friend of mine let me, it's called Booze. Um, it's sort of a, a history of prohibition in Canada that had some fascinating anecdotes about how people dealt with it and also why people felt like prohibition was important. Um, I also uh, consulted a a stack of fascinating ads and newspapers um, that I found in the Peels Provincial Archives. Uh, They they sort of added up to an interesting uh, impression of how one Edmonton brewery that you can still see uh, survived Prohibition. Um, So yeah, this is my best understanding of how a brewery that opened just before Prohibition began uh, how that building um, survived the Prohibition era here. If you walk through the brewery district in Edmonton's Oliver neighborhood, you'll notice that the only building with character and history, the only one worth looking at that isn't temporary garbage, the only one that was clearly built to last, is the old Molson Brewery. But the funny thing is that it wasn't built by Molson, and the last bricks were laid on the eve of Prohibition in Alberta, which is also strange to think about today. How did a brand new brewery ride out almost a decade of prohibition in this province and last long enough to become the landmark that defines a whole commercial district? So let's back up. Who built the place? It was the Edmonton Brewing and Malting Company. The owner also owned the Strathcona Hotel down on White Ave. This new brewery was built in 1913, and prohibition came into effect in 1915, just two years after that. It's kind of hard to understand why Prohibition came about today. Reading about the temperance movement feels like reading telegrams from another planet. But here are some things that I've learned. Journalist and historian James H. Gray wrote a book about Prairie Prohibition called Booze. And one thing he mentions about this time that really surprised me is a lot of men would stop at the bar on their way home on payday, which is not unheard of today. But you've got to picture whole towns where most of the guys are getting paid at the same time once a month, And they're all getting paid by check. And they don't get off work until after the banks have closed. A lot of them have a wife and kids at home waiting on that money to buy groceries and stuff. So if the banks are closed, who's going to cash your check that night? The hotel bars. And if you're going to stop at the bar to cash your check and buy a drink, well, it's understandable that it became tradition to buy a round of whiskeys for the boys from work too. This was huge business. Gray has this anecdote about a guy named George Vivian who ran the Stockyards Hotel in Winnipeg. And George would prep for his payday rush by walking to the bank to pick up cash and then walking a mile back from the bank, carrying $5,000. Somehow he never got robbed. And this hard drinking culture at the time legitimately became a serious problem. Some men really were drinking away whole paychecks. And in the seven years leading up to prohibition, convictions for drunkenness tripled in Alberta. So whatever you might think of banning the bar, the temperance movement wasn't just a bunch of pious busybodies trying to stop guys from having a good time. Maybe partly that, but not all that. So how did the Edmonton Brewing and Malting Company survive till Prohibition ended in the 1920s? I'd heard rumors that they sold beer for export. It wasn't unprecedented at the time for breweries in Canada to find a legal loophole that let them sell alcohol to other provinces or to the states, but I didn't find any evidence that the Edmonton Brewing and Malting Company specifically tried that. The one thing I was able to find a good source on was that they sold temperance beer. The provincial legislation in Alberta actually allowed you to buy very light beer as long as you had a prescription from a doctor or a druggist. The company advertised their beer as a health product. They had an ad in the Calgary Eye Opener in 1922, for example, that said, Edmonton beer is the right beverage to build up strength, health, and happiness. Oh yes, and it adds, complies with government regulations. In 1918, they took out an ad in a French paper, L'Union, That said basically, try the temperance beverages of Edmonton beer and imperial stout, refreshing and nutritious. My favorite is this 1922 ad that says, Edmonton beer is a mild, admittedly useful beverage, the real means of temperance. The percentage of alcohol is a mere incident and serves to stimulate the digestive activity of the stomach while its food value is of the highest order. Maybe they took out all these ads to counteract the bad press they got from that time that the police charged them with a breach of the Liquor Act for selling temperance beer that was stronger than the prescribed percentage of two and a half percent. To be honest, it looks like they hardly suffered at all from Prohibition. A few years in, they only had to lay off about a quarter of their workforce. And when Prohibition ended in 1925, they were strong enough to keep brewing there for decades. Eventually, they sold the building to Molson. Now, Prohibition had some impact on reducing some of the wild drunkenness and social disorder, but we also know people were bootlegging and making moonshine and buying alcohol of unknown origin and unknown strength and hoping it didn't make them go blind. So how did our ancestors get it so wrong? Why were they so uptight about having a couple drinks? Well, maybe they didn't think so differently from us. Prohibition lasted in Prince Edward Island until 1948, and under the Indian Act, First Nations folks couldn't legally buy alcohol until 1985. And really, Until 2018, buying pot in Canada was just like buying bootlegged alcohol. People bought it from anonymous sources, knew very little about its content or strength, found ways to get a prescription for pretty much the same reasons. Moral concern about society endorsing a vice. Consider how we talk about safe consumption sites for harder drugs today. Our provincial government is ideologically opposed to their existence, and they're conducting a review that intentionally excludes studying any of the health or safety benefits of these places. All of which is to say, I guess, maybe the past isn't such a distant planet. That was a glimpse into the life of the Molson Brewery, uh, aka the old brewing and malting company building. This was an impossible task. I don't know why I gave myself this task. There's no, like, book that says, <laughs> oh, here's, here's how the Edmonton Brewing and Malting Company survived prohibition. There's pieces of information that I picked up from lots of different sources, but nobody had it collected in one place. It was, I, It was a hilarious assignment to give myself.
2: So you're going to write a book now. Oh, yeah. Just so that, yeah. that a document does exist somewhere for future generations.
3: <laughs> yes. Yeah,
2: definitely. All right. So this brings us to the last piece uh, of the series. And it was going uh, back to the White Avenue neighborhood again uh, to look at the Garno Theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you can set that up a little bit for us.
3: Yeah, uh, I think lots of people would recognize the Garneau Theater on 109th Street. It's got a very distinctive neon sign, Uh, kind of has an Art Deco flavor, Um, but uh, it's possible if you've gone to see a movie there that you haven't had a chance to check out the projection room or the bunker room in the basement. Um, So Metro Cinema runs the theater these days, and uh, some of the Metro staff
10: uh, took me on a tour from bottom to top. Hi, I'm uh, Dan Smith, and uh, I work at Metro Cinema right now as the interim executive director.
12: Hello, I'm Alan Mulholland, and I'm the facility manager for Metro Cinema and the Garneau Theatre.
10: Uh, so we're in the Garno Theatre, which is at uh, 8712 109th Street, and uh, right now we are standing in the basement uh, of the theatre in what could kind of be described as a reverse uh, bomb shelter or bunker. <laughs> Um, This is the room that originally held all of the uh, flammable film way back in the day, and so it is a very solid and secure concrete square.
3: We're going to take listeners uh, from bottom to top of the building, show you some places that you haven't been before, and this is definitely a room I've never been in before. So this is like, what's that movie? the Quentin Tarantino one, where they set all the cellulite on fire. And glorious
10: yeah. bastards, yeah. So this is to prevent that from happening. This is to prevent that uh, that from happening.
12: And, yeah. and it's actually funny because by the time that uh, this theater was built in 1940, they were using Kodak safety film anyway, so there really wasn't much nitrate film anymore. But it was the code, and and uh, you'll see that when you get up to the booth, it's the same. It's like a big concrete bunker. So,
3: huh. what uh, do you ever? still roll anything that would be highly flammable no, they, no there's nothing like that
10: nowadays
12: <laughs> actually most of the nitrate film got used that's why a lot of films ended up being lost is that all the nitrate prints were used during world war ii to make bombs so so they rendered a lot of it down to uh, to make nitroglycerin so
3: all right let's head to the main floor uh okay auditorium
12: Auditorium. This is the auditorium of the Garneau Theatre.
3: Curtains closed.
12: And uh, it is actually very much as it was when it was originally designed, except, of course, the screen is much wider.
3: Square footage-wise, how long does it take to clean up all the stuff from the Rocky Horror Picture Show? Uh, it
12: takes a very, very long time. I think it's usually about... they finish about five or six in the morning so, oh my God. so <laughs> i would say it's probably yeah four or five six hours yeah depends <laughs> on how busy the crowd is
3: this theater was built in 1940. 1940 was was there enough demand to fill a theater like this in 1940
12: oh yeah, yeah, yeah the movies were big in 1940 and uh you know given that it was war and there was no television right uh if you wanted to find out what was happening Uh, Over in Europe, uh, you know, newsreels were obviously a big thing, right? So Mm -hmm. there would have been people every Saturday pouring into the theater to see what was going on with the war.
3: And Metro Cinema, the nonprofit film society that now runs the theater, has been in here since?
10: 2011. Cool. Projector? Yeah,
3: if you want to check out the booth. Let's do it. Heading up to the
10: projector room. Go backstage. Uh, so we're uh, we're up in uh, the projection booth of the Garno Theatre. And we have uh, our uh,
13: projectionist here today. Uh, hi, I'm Brad Syme. I'm the head projectionist at the Metro Cinema.
3: And uh, so we have how many projectors in this room?
13: Well, there's three projectors. There's the digital projector on the far right, which is what... of what we show is screened off of, and then we have these two beauties here the 35 millimeter projectors, which we used to use all the time, but now we only use three or four times a year. Oh, really? Yeah.
3: When I think of working back here, I always feel like it would, I, I would just, I would definitely mess it up, like with the timing, and it seems like a very stressful thing to go from one reel to another.
13: Yeah, it is really stressful. When I'm doing my job well, nobody knows I exist. And if I, if something goes wrong, then everybody knows I exist. And I look <laughs> out in the auditorium, and like everyone's head is turned back. It's, it's awful. It's an awful feeling. The worst. So, it's a it's a high stakes game. Where are we headed now?
10: Um. So this is. Uh, What is now essentially another uh, office uh, and storage space, uh, and we store, I guess, more uh, technical gear, um, and it's a bit of a a workspace for Alan as well.
3: Many cardboard boxes and wires up here.
10: Yes, notably the carpet in here is the original carpet from the lobby when the building opened. Fancy. Adds a bit of glamor to a a room that (laughs) otherwise uh, doesn't have much at this point. So the last space we're going to
3: take you, which we cannot go to today, but uh, which does exist at the very top of the Garno Theater is uh, the attic.
10: The attic uh, over that way that would be over top of the auditorium, it's, uh, it's a little dark uh, right now, so we probably won't venture in there, but it's full of more <laughs> storage stuff, mostly.
3: Whoa! That's a nice view. So we're looking out from the roof, and uh, we can see the U of A from here. I think I can see the engineering building, Tori. Hey, there's the Caesar Star's transmitter tower, and uh, a nice snowy view on the roof. <laughs> well, thank you for the tour of the Garno Theater, Dan.
10: Uh, thank you. Uh, it, was, uh, it was fun to take you around and show you some of the, the spaces in here that people don't normally get to see.
3: All right. Uh, and uh, what's, what's one film coming up that uh, listeners might be able to see here that they wouldn't be able to see anywhere else in the city?
10: Uh, well, we are opening exclusively The Irishman uh, uh, prior to it hitting Netflix, so they can, uh, they can check that out in the coming weeks. Martin Scorsese's uh, new film about uh, at least one possible story about Jimmy Hoffa. Whether it's historically accurate, we'll probably never know. So this will not be a Marvel film. This will not be a Marvel film uh, is my guess. Uh, and Martin Scorsese would tell you that for sure. <laughs> Thanks, Ed. Yeah.
3: Thanks to uh, the Metro Cinema staff, Brad Syme, Dan Smith, and Alan Mulholland for giving me a behind-the-scenes tour of the Garneau Theater. Uh, it was pretty cool to see that. And there was a ton that they told me that I could not fit in that story, to.
2: Well, thank you so much, Chris, for uh, spending the year with us, um, helping to uh, tell these stories. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to chat about before we wrap up the episode?
3: Thanks for giving me the opportunity to add some new layers uh, to my understanding of the city. I will uh, be an even more great slash annoying tour guide when I take people around the city now. Oh, do you know what that place used to be? I got a couple more of those, so thanks. All right, Thanks a lot, Chris.
2: Thanks so much to Chris Chang-Yan Phillips for working with us throughout the year and for all the great stories he shared with us.
1: And thanks to all of you for tuning in and sharing your time with us.
2: We hope you enjoyed our special year-end show. If you did, be sure to share it with your friends.
1: And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews are a big help, and we really love to hear your feedback.
2: You can also follow the Well Endowed Podcast on Facebook, and that's where you can share your thoughts and see some pics from the show.
1: Thanks again for hanging out with us. We've been your hosts, Lisa Pruden.
2: And Andrew Paul. Until Until next year.